Turn with me, if you have a Bible, to John chapter 7. We are walking through this gospel account of an eyewitness. His name is John, the apostle. We're in John chapter 7. We'll finish up this chapter. We'll actually go to the uh, verse 52, starting at uh, 37. And then we'll pick up in uh, verse 53 and go through chapter 8 next week. If you have a Bible, you'll notice there's a note or an asterisk or something that says, not found in the earliest manuscripts, and some Bibles may not even have it, and you're thinking, what's up with that? Next week, we'll talk about it. So right now, we're in John seven thirty-seven. Hear the word of the Lord. There's Bibles in the back if you don't have one. When we dismiss the kids in a moment, if you don't have a Bible, just sneak out with them and look like you're teaching and then come back in and grab a Bible. <laughs> Chapter 7, Gospel according to John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Verse 37, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me out of the scripture, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this had been said at the Spirit whom those who had believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. When they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the Scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him. But no one laid hands on him. Verse 45, the officers then came to the chief priests and the Pharisees who said to them, why did you not bring him? The officers answered, no one ever spoke like this, man. The Pharisees answered them, have you? Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. The Nicodemus who had come to him before, and who was one of them, said to them, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? And they replied, are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word uh, this morning. So children, you're dismissed for Children's Church. If you have not signed them in, check them in, please do so. Um, It'd be good if you did that when you come in, but if you haven't done it, that's fine. Uh, do that this morning, that would be great. The rest of us are in John 7. This text this morning, as, I'm, as I was studying this week, um, really it's a good time just to remind everyone, we haven't done this in a while, um, what the Gospel of John, his account, is all about. Our, our series called The Invisible Made Visible kind of gives you the heart of this gospel account. The invisible made visible. John's account is about the invisible creator, transcendent God, has made himself known by taking on flesh, humanity, and his name is Jesus, the second person of the one triune God. John declared early in chapter 1 in his prologue, in the beginning was the word, was the logos, uh, the, but before all things began, in the origin of all things before that, the Word existed. Then he says the Word was with God. That's intimacy with God, face-to-face with God. And then he simply says, and the Word was God. We believe as Christians that the Bible teaches us that God is one. Hebrew, akad, he's one. Co-equal, co-existent, and co-eternal. One in essence, yet three in distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. 
And John couldn't have said it any clearer than he did in John 1, that in the beginning, in existence, in eternity, was the Word. The Word was with God. There is, there is, there is, there is a distinction, yet there is unity, and the Word was God. And then in John 1.14, he says, this Word, this Logos, became flesh. He tented, he tabernacled, he dwelt with us. So the Word is existent in all eternity. He is God, second person of the Trinity, but he was not always human. He takes on human form. And John says that he is the only Son from the Father. Unique, that means, is the only one who's full of grace and truth. Jesus Christ, John declares early on, is the full expression of God's grace. He's the full expression of God's truth. And since Jesus is full of grace... You could come to him and you know that Christ will receive you. He's full of truth so you could trust him in his word and his promises. And then John ends his prologue talking about Moses, if you remember. Jesus, he says, and he recounts Moses' encounter with God and, and, and the glimpse that Moses got of his glory, of his person, of the goodness of God himself. But Moses only got a glimpse. And then John tells us the one whom Moses did not see or could not see, too glorious to look upon. The one full of grace and truth is in the person who is full of grace and truth, and his name is Jesus. He ultimately, he perfectly and finally revealed the Father to us. Why does John say all this to us? Why am I repeating it again this morning? Because the purpose of John's account, his gospel account, he gives us in chapter 20 he makes it very clear that Jesus did a lot of signs. He did a lot of things in the, in, in, in the presence of his disciples. But these things, John says, the ones that I have chosen to include in this gospel account are written so that you may believe who Jesus is. He is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He is the Son of God, the Son of, of the same nature as God. And believing, knowing him, trusting him, you may have life in his name. The reason, again, why I mention this is that because that's what John set out to do. To reveal the person and the work of Jesus. Not the Jesus of your imagination, but the Jesus of reality. There's been so much confusion up to this point. So much confusion. So many different perspectives, pers- uh, you know, evaluations, speculations of just who Jesus is and was. Not unlike today. And in the midst of this confusion, which we're going to look at in a moment, here in our text, Jesus stands up and, and, and confesses and cries out and reveals something very, very, very important about himself. It really is the answer to life's ultimate purpose, to life's ultimate question. Who is Jesus? Why is that important? That's what we're going to look at this morning. What I want to do as we look at our passive scripture is something a little bit different than we usually do. We usually start in our narrative at the beginning and we work through it. That's just the way I think. This day, today, what we're going to do is we're going to look at our narrative, verse 37 through 52, and we're going to start at the end and look at what happened after Jesus spoke because I want to end on the words of Jesus and exactly what Jesus said. What we're going to do is we're going to start at the bottom. We're going to look at it's a very, very simple outline if you're following with us. We're going to look at the continuation of the confusion. There's a lot of confusion. John 7 is loaded with it. Then we'll look at the celebration of the crowd. Something very important uh, is going on in, in that life, in that day, in that context. Then the confession of the Christ. We'll see his words. And finally, we'll look at the condition of the call because something has to happen. 
for us to receive the promises of God, to receive Christ as Lord and Savior of who he really is. So that's where we're going. So number one, look at the continuation. There's a lot of confusion. All the way throughout Scripture, John 7 is, is probably, I, I didn't look this up, so don't hold me to it, but it appears that John 7, the chapter 7, has the most confused people in it of, of, of all of John. There are a lot of confusion going on, man. And it's not so much confusion. Do you remember what Jesus said in John 3? He said, light has come into the world. People would rather, what, love the darkness? Not so much confusion as is rebellion. We're asking God to soften our hearts. Because light has come in. People don't want to see the light. People love the darkness. They'd rather not look at the light because the light reveals. Light is purity. Jesus is the light of the world. He is pure. He's without sin. It reveals our dark spots, right? Light reveals our sin. Remember John 2, excuse me, John 1. (laughs) They think he's Elijah. They're not sure if he's the prophet that Moses talked about. Chapter 2, destroy this temple. And they're like, how's he going to destroy this temple? It took us 40-something years. He said, I'll raise it up in three days. He was talking about his body. John 4, Samaritan woman, give me this water from this well, and I will live forever. He wasn't talking about that. And then by the time we get to John 7, I mean, even Nicodemus, how do you become born again? I got to climb into my mother's womb? Lots of confusion. And Jesus is pressing through that. John is pressing through that. And we're going to see something very important today about who Jesus really is. By the time we get to John 7, you remember, his brothers are confused. They want to take Jesus and bring him into the feast, the time of Jerusalem, and, and just parade him. They want everyone to see him. They want all the accolades. They, they're like, listen, my brother, he's a miracle worker. You should see how great this guy is. Let's go to Jerusalem, man. Let, let's make something of ourselves. That's John 7. John 7, verse 12, the Jewish people were complaining and, and, and grumbling. Some people said he's a good man. Some people said, ah, you know what? He's deceiving people, leading people astray. It says in John 7, 13, that no one said a word because they were afraid. Then in John 7, 14, Jesus stands up in the middle of this feast and begins to teach. And all the rabbis and religious leaders are like, where did this guy get this learning? I mean, he's quoting scripture. They're surprised that God knows scripture. I, I, you know, not a surprise to me. And he's got a command of scripture like the rabbis do, but he didn't go to our schools. By the time we get to chapter 7, verse 20, they're like, he's demon-possessed. In fact, he's paranoid and demon-possessed. He's thinking everybody's trying to kill him. Actually, people were trying to kill him, right? So they ask in verse 25, remember, this is, this is the time of opposition. This is the third year of ministry. This is six months from the cross. Jesus had, did his first year of inauguration with his baptism, the second year of popularity, large crowds, third year opposition, people are really pushing and pressing and wanting him dead. We're, we're six months into that. And in verse 26, they're like, uh, we're perplexed. We don't, we don't understand this guy. He's speaking openly. No one's doing anything. Everybody's a tough guy when Jesus is not around. And now he's here. Could, could the authorities really think he's Jesus, the Christ? We know this guy. He's from Galilee. We know his mom. We know his siblings. He cannot possibly be the Messiah. And jump down in chapter 7, verse 30. Religious leaders say this, and we'll see this soon. Chapter 7, verse 30. They were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him. Why? Because his hour, underline that in your Bible. When you see it in John, his hour, his cross, the crucifixion, the resurrection, the hour of his glorification had not yet come. 
They didn't lay a hand on him. And even in the midst of this, we see the fathers, we talked about this last week, providential protection of his son. It wasn't time appointed by the father from all eternity for Christ to go to the cross. It will be, but it's not yet. And finally, we look at verse 32. The Pharisees and the chief priest heard the crowd. They were muttering. Again, one of my favorite words. Hope you used it this week a lot. And they sent the temple officers to arrest him. Even with all this confusion, we'll look in a few minutes, Jesus stands up and declares something very, very important. Even after he makes something very clear about himself, there's still confusion. Look at verse 40. When they heard these words, some of the people said, okay, now we're throwing some more speculations, not revelation, not who he says he is. We're just going to make stuff up. This must be the prophet. Verse 41, this is the Christ. Okay, we go, I mean, maybe they're warming up. And some said, nah, is it the Christ? It's not going to come from Galilee. Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from uh, uh, the offspring of David and from Bethlehem, the village where David was? Now, now, let's all recognize, if not for the grace of God, there go I. Totally confused. But it seems like they're running around, slapping each other upside the head. And all I could think of is, you know, <laughs> like, guys, like, you, you know, you're just running around in circles. Boop, boop, boop. You know, it's like, just listen to what Jesus is saying. <laughs> I love that picture. So, here in our text, like in chapter 6, Jesus feeds the crowd in the wilderness, you remember, Five loaves, two fish. And in that day when he did it, back in chapter 6, everyone said he must be the prophet that Moses spoke about. Because they, they recognized that what Jesus did looks just like what Moses did in the wilderness with manna. Deuteronomy 18, Moses prophesied, The Lord your God will raise up a prophet, a praise up prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is him you shall listen. This must be him. He, he's feeding us miraculously. This must be the one. Unfortunately, what they were looking for was in the earthly kingdom. They were looking for someone to come in and conquer Jerusalem at that moment and announce the national, you know, uh, 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 takeover. If you remember in chapter 6, it was then, right after the feeding, that they wanted to force him. They wanted to take him by force and make him king. And here we'll see that what Jesus does and speaks in verse 37 and 38 kind of reminds them of Moses. But he's not the one, Jesus is the one Moses spoke about, but not what they thought. They wanted an earthly king. Some simply say he's the Christ. But some were like, I don't know. Could he be? I mean, he's from Galilee. Isn't the Messiah coming from the great city of David? Shouldn't he come from Jerusalem? Wasn't the scripture, which it does, Second Samuel says that, doesn't he... Isn't he coming from being born in Bethlehem? Micah 5 tells us that. Now, I'm not, you know, the scripture doesn't tell us whether they were just ignorant. Um, you know, they didn't know that Jesus is from the line of David, that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. I, I don't know. But maybe they just wouldn't look at that, but it's true what they're saying, but you know, obviously they have no idea what they're talking about. I think John is just showing us that it's just scrapping at straws. You know, it's just reaching for the stars. We don't know. I, I, maybe it, it, the Christ could it be. Maybe they're asking questions that were needed to be asked at the time. But we know one thing. Look at verse 43. So there was division. 
schisma. There was, there was schisms among them. There were people talking all kinds of different things who they thought he was. Look at verse 44. Some of them, though, wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him, right? We're back to that again. The providential care of the father. Some think he's a prophet. Some think he's the Christ. Some are like, ah, I'm not really sure if he is or not. Verse 45, the officer then came to the chief priests and the Pharisees who said to them, why did you not bring him? And the officer said, no one ever spoke like him. The Pharisees answered him, have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or Pharisees believed in him? So let, let, me, let me tie the story together. Verse 32, go arrest him. It's middle of the feast. The end of the feast, which is now, and they're to call the officer, the temple guards, who are in charge of policing the area, and they're like, where is he? We don't see any handcuffs. Uh, he's not in custody. We sent you to get him. Where is he? It's the end of the feast. A couple days later, there's nobody in custody. And you, could only, you, know, you feel kind of bad for these temple police they're like between a rock and a hard place. Like, this guy, I'm not arresting him. Like, he is, he's talking about, you know, the Savior. He's got a following. There are a lot of people that think he might be the Christ. He's doing some special miraculous things. I, I'm not going near the guy. Like, yeah, but how are we going to go back? What are we going to tell the, the, the Sanhedrin, these power brokers of Israel? Like, we don't have him. We're not, we're not, there's not much we can do. We're a little intimidating, I'm sure. But right on cue, I love it. Religious legalists don't get their way, so they revert to name-calling, right, and, and insults. Verse 49. Ha, yeah, okay. You didn't bring them to us? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. They're a bunch of ignorant idiots anyway. They don't know what they're talking about. That's exactly what he's saying from, from, the, from the Lou narrative. <laughs> the, the disparaging remark regarding the crowd they were ignorant of the law, it's kind of ironic. I mean, they're asking right questions. Could this be the Christ? Is he the prophet? And here are these legalists who know the scriptures. We want him dead. Bring him to me. Verse 50, Nicodemus shows up again. Who had gone to him before, remember chapter 3, at night he went to go see Jesus. Who was one of them, so John is telling us he's still a Pharisee, still part of that religious establishment. I do think he comes to faith at the end, but at this moment he's still one of them. And he says, hey guys, listen, uh, you want him dead. Does our Lord judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? You notice he comes to Jesus' aid. He's not saying he is the Christ and I'm going to fall down and worship him. He's not defending him in a sense, but he's saying, look, guys, let's be fair. You're the religious leaders. You know the law. What do you have against this guy? Have you heard from him? Do you know what he's saying? Are you listening to everybody else? I mean, let's, let's, be, you know, let's, let's look at what we have in common. It's called the law, and we should follow that. Again, right on cue, right? The religious legalists that are so meticulous about law-keeping, their moral standard, what they think everyone should do, and as soon as, they, as soon as something else happens, they'll violate their own law, right? It doesn't really matter. We'll just, we'll, because we want you to be like us. That's what legalists like to do. You want to be just like me. I have my moral standard. I have my law. I have my rules. But if you point something out, uh, you know, then I'll, I'll just change that. Verse 52, they replied, huh, Nicodemus, who is a teacher of the law, a very well-known teacher of the law, are you from Galilee too? Why don't you go search the scriptures and see that no prophet arises from Galilee? Well, first of all, the answer is yes. Jonah, prophet, 
came from Galilee. Nahum came from Galilee. So yes, prophets have come from Galilee. In fact, Isaiah 9, you have to turn there now. You can look at it later. Isaiah 9 talks about coming from Galilee that a light has shone to the Gentiles from Galilee. The people who walk in darkness, he says, have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. Lots of confusion there. Lots of confusion. And I think it's a good time to ask ourselves. I'll ask you, ask myself, who are we listening to when it comes to Jesus? Who are we listening to? Some of you young kids are getting ready to go to college. You're going to hear a lot of different perspectives. Who are we listening to when it comes to Jesus? Is it false claims that people who don't know him, are we taking the words of Christ to, to mean exactly what he says? Are we taking the claims of Christ? Are we listening to what the eyewitnesses say? I mean, the claims of Christ are shocking and astounding on the things that Jesus said. He's not simply someone who came from Galilee. Jesus said, I come down from heaven. I have eternally existed and the Father sent me. Jesus said, I am the Savior of the world. He came to have the ultimate destiny of every soul in his hand. He claimed to be the source of everlasting life and the only way to God. He claimed to have the right to be honored and worshipped as Yahweh. He claimed to be one with the Father. He claimed to have power over life. He claimed to raise people from the dead. He claimed to be the fulfillment of the Old Testament. He claimed to be the supreme judge of the whole world, and someday he will return to judge every single soul. He claimed to have the power and authority to forgive sins. He claimed to be the only source of eternal sustenance, bread and water for our souls. He claimed to be the light of the world, which means purity. He claimed to be the son of God with the same prerogatives, with the same privileges and exclusive rights as God himself. So let's have some integrity today if we can, as we move forward. Someone who's making those claims can simply, just simply be overlooked. Cannot be just some man. He cannot be just some prophet. He cannot be just some good teacher. So as we sit here this morning, we'll have to make a judgment on Jesus Christ. Your perspective, your perceptions, your speculation, and where are you getting your source of information about Jesus and who he is and who he was has severe eternal implications. And I want you to feel that this morning as we move into what Jesus had to say. The celebration of the crowd, 37. So what's going on? You remember? It's the feast of tabernacles the feast of booths very important feast three feasts all jewish males had to go you had the feast of passover the feast of pentecost and the feast of tabernacles every jewish male able-bodied male was to flock to jerusalem thousands of people are there maybe a million flooding into the city at this festival called the feast of booths jerusalem is packed this whole festival is a twofold purpose Okay, it's very important we understand this. We're going to see it come alive. First of all, it took place on the seventh month, right? It took place on the seventh month. It was a time of harvest. 
the Jewish people were celebrating. This is a great celebratory feast. It was a time of the far, uh, uh, harvest. It was in the seventh month. Israel, there's been rain, there's been harvest, there's been fruit, and they're gathering the fruit. It's the end of the agricultural year, and they're giving thanks to the Lord in, in a joyous way, saying he has provided for us. Now, for those of you who go to ShopRite and Price Chopper, you can't understand that. But if what you grew was your source of life and you had enough, you would be very satisfied and very joyous. Try to enter into that culture, okay? It also commemorated the provision God supplied for the Israelites as they wandered in the desert for 40 years. Jewish people, we mentioned this before, built tents or booths or tabernacles out of leafy branches to live in. It was a temporary structure where I grew up in Muncie, New York. They had them out during this time of tabernacle. It was three-sided with a roof, but you could look out and you could see the moon and the stars. It kept the weather out, the bad weather, but you could see. And it was a, it was, it was a way in which they would remember the, their people, their ancestries, what they went through as they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. Leviticus 23, Moses says this. You shall take on the first day the fruit of bl- uh, splendid trees, branches of palm trees and boughs and leaves trees and willows of the brook, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God. Seven days. You shall celebrate it as a feast to the Lord for seven days in the year. It is a statute forever throughout generations. You shall celebrate, notice the word celebrate, in the seventh month. You shall dwell in booths for seven days. And all native Israel shall dwell in booths. That your generation may know that I am, listen, know that I made the people of Israel dwell in booths and I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. That's what they're doing. They're, they're, they're in this temporary shelter. They're memorializing God's provision and his protection. Now, during the feast, and you need to see this. You know, if, if you don't like background and culture, I'm sorry. But we're going to have to see this. During this festival, the priests, two of them, made a procession each morning from the sacrifice in the temple. They had a big place where they would sacrifice animals onto the Lord. It was a time of, of atonement and forgiveness of sin. And the priest would would. In the, dressed in their, in their robes, would split. And one would go get the leaves and, and the fruit that we talked about. Another priest and a band of Israelites would go down to the pool of Siloam. One priest would go get leaves. The other priest would go down to the pool of Siloam with what they call a flag on as a pitcher. And he would fill the pitcher of water during the morning sacrifice. And the priests would return and they would come through the, the east side of the city through the water gate. That's where the structure of Richard Nixon was. <laughs> All right, you're awake. I just want to make sure you're following me, okay? If you remember the water gate, in Ez- we went through Ezra and Nehemiah, the gospel according to Ezra and Nehemiah. It was the water gate where Ezra st- stood up in the platform and, and taught the word of God, expounded the scriptures and explained the scriptures to the people. It's in that water gate. So the people would come up, the priests would come up, a band, they would come into the temple, go around this altar where they would sacrifice one time and pour the water, the flag on the top of the altar and it would pour out like an offering and it would flow down the steps into the temple area, outside into the place and it would be like symbolic of God's salvation, God's provision for the whole world would come through Israel. Okay, I want you to see that. The pouring was a way to remember the faithfulness of God, how he provided water from the rock. Remember this story? Moses broke the rock, water poured out. It was also, uh, we'll see in Isaiah, it was also symbolic of God's salvation and his pouring out of his spirit in the last days. They were celebrating, they were waving branches, okay? 
So this is the last day. They had a week-long celebration. Great day called the Hazana Day. They've been celebrating all week. The priests are dressed in the morning sacrifice are being prepared. They, they, they split off and this whole band of people follow the priest. One goes down to the pool of Siloam where there's a river of living water, actually a river coming through in the pool and he, and he scoops up the flag and it's filled with water. And they, and they brought back in through the water gate and the other priests are coming in. As they come through the water gate, the shofar, blast, the trumpet, three times, a celebratory announcement. God's provision, God's faithfulness. Way back into the temple. Instead of going down around the altar once, on the last day they went seven times. Reminding them of God's faithfulness in Jericho. They would approach the altar exactly at the time when the priests were laying sacrifices down. And they would pour these drink offering. One was water from the pool of Siloam, the river of living water. The other one was wine. They'd have a wine offering. And as they were pouring this, the band began to play. And the Hillel was being sung, Psalm 113 through 118. And they would be shouting and emphasizing phrases like this. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. Several times, oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. And then they shouted when it got to Psalm 118. Oh, now work for salvation. Oh, now, oh, work now for salvation. They would quote Isaiah 12. With joy you will draw water from the well of salvation. It was a time they were waiting on the manifestation of the son of David. You can imagine thousands in the band and the playing and the shaking of the palm branches, the fruit in the other hand. God provided water from the rock, we remember. God's pouring out his spirit in the messianic age, a foretaste to come. I want you to feel that. They're praying, they're singing, they're asking God for rain. They're remembering his wonderful provision. They're shaking their palms. And when everything is done, there is silence. We believe it was then. Jesus stood up, not like the rabbis who sat down. Jesus stood up when it was all done and said, come to me. Come to me. If anyone thirsts, come to me. Rivers of living water will flow from you. All that has been done in this festival has now been fulfilled in me. The outpouring of water, the giving of the Spirit, the provision of God come to me. Isaiah pointed to the river. I am the river. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. You can imagine the shock in the silence as they waited for salvation, as they waited for the messianic kingdom, as they waited that God had provided and he will soon supply the fullness of the spirit, the messianic age, and Jesus stands up to be heard and cries out. If you believe in me, as the scriptures have said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. I am the fulfillment of all the symbolic things are going on in his feast. I am the Passover lamb. Another feast he's full, he, he, he fulfilled. I am the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He fulfills the feast of Yom Kippur when the priest would go behind the Holy of Holies and sacrifice animals for the sins of the people and their own sins. And Jesus says, I will die on the cross. I will shed my blood which will tear the veil open. Not for my sins, but for my people's sins. He is Yom Kippur. He is the Day of Atonement. He is 
the day of Passover. I don't want you to miss this. In this feast, I want you to go there for me. Outside the temple court, what was covering the community? All of Jerusalem. The booths. The tabernacles. Isn't it incredible that each booth, each tabernacle was its own silent witness to how the invisible God tabernacled among us, John 1.14. Jesus tabernacled. And there are these booths foreshadowing his incarnation. Well, at that time, the coming of Jesus, he had come in the flesh. He is the fulfillment. Our Lord was inviting thirsty souls to come to him for spiritual, eternal, life-giving water. Not, this, not the water they would drink into the pool of Siloam, but true living water. I want to see three things, if you're taking notes, about this living water. Number one, everyone is thirsty. I'm here to tell you this morning, everyone is thirsty. When Jesus says, when Jesus says, if anyone is thirsty, he does not mean that pe- some people are not. The question is, that he's asking is, are you thirsty for God? If not, ask yourself, what are you thirsty for? The heart longs to be satisfied. You say, no, 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 not me. Not me, I'm not longing for anything. Really? Really? A feeling that something's missing in your life? That's a thirst. Longing for peace and joy and significance and relationship? We thirst. Good marriage, close relationships, good friendships, harmony. We thirst. We want to love and to be loved. We thirst. We long for fulfillment at work and at home and in our neighborhoods to make a difference, to be worthwhile and to be appreciated. We thirst. We thirst for a sense of purpose. And here lies the problem. We all thirst, but because of sin, we don't recognize our thirst or we run and pursue things that will never satisfy. Our heart longing and we continually thirst and never are satisfied. John Piper's dad, who's an evangelist, told John Piper that the most difficult thing was not getting people to come to know Christ, but getting them to recognize their loss without him, that they're thirsty and parched without him. They have to see their desperate need for Christ. They don't feel they're thirsty. Instead, we try to quench our thirst in so many wrong things, and so many wrong things, success, money, fame, sexual pleasure, other things that we think will truly satisfy us. That's the problem. Thirsting for things other than God, thirsting for things other than God and for his glory is the root of our sin. The solution is recognizing, now hear me, that our souls were made Every one of you in this room. Our souls were made for Jesus. The ache in our heart, the thirst in our heart, at its root, at its root is an ache and thirst for Jesus. We shouldn't deny it, we embrace it. Charles Spurgeon said this. Come if you do thirst. And come if you think you do not thirst, but wish you did. For that wish to thirst is the very thirst you wish for. Your lack of a power, your lack of a power to feel the lack of, is your greatest lack. The more unfit you feel yourself to be, the more you are invited to come. The more unfit you feel yourself to be, the more you are invited to come. Your very unfitness is your fitness to coming to Jesus, end quote. When you go without water, you get what? Thirsty. When your heart and soul goes without God, 
you get thirsty. Your body made to live on water. Your soul and your heart were made to live on God. This is the most important thing I need you to see this morning about yourself. You were made to live with God. You were made to live on God. You're not just a body with urges. You're a soul. You're a spirit. If your soul does not drink, if, listen, if your soul does not drink on the beauty, the goodness, the glory, the grace, the love of God, you will die. But come to Jesus. So all must come, okay? All are thirsty, I should say. And secondly, look at all are invited. Jesus says, come to me. He doesn't say, go over there and drink, go over here and drink. He says, come to me and drink, right? Come to me. It's a general call to everyone to come to Jesus. Now, you may say, all right, well, that's, that's, you know, that seems like Jesus. He wants everyone to come. But think about this for a minute. Who is he talking to? Go back to the original context. The Hebrews, the religious leaders, the people that came in from different regions, there are Gentiles there who were converted to Judaism, full proselytes, or maybe just people who just want to know God. The temple and the Jerusalem is packed with people, but most importantly, he's talking to the people that want him dead, that hate him, that are looking to kill him, that are looking to arrest him. And the invitation He doesn't say, come to me, except that crowd right there. (laughs) You guys want me dead. Be gone. Or or, or that crowd, I know what you've been through last night. I know what you went through last week. I know what your life is all about. He doesn't do that. Invitation is to everyone, come. Come to me. Don't let anything stop you from coming to Jesus. He is full of grace. He will love you and change you and forgive you and transform you and not leave you where you are. Any man being Christ is a new creation. God has has forgiveness for you. So listen, all are thirsty, all are invited, and look at the last one, all must drink. I mean, it's very simple. All must drink. When you drink, when you drink, you take in that which you drink. Drinking involves appropriation. He says, whoever believes in me, that's how you drink. You believe and and you drink. You drink and you believe. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture says, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Are you thirsty this morning, family? Are you thirsty? Our souls will drink and be satisfied when Jesus is our supreme and all-satisfying treasure. He is the thirst quenching water is Jesus. He is food for our souls, but you have to come. You have to come. You must come and drink. What Jesus is talking about, look what he says, out of your belly, actually. That's the original. It says, out of your belly, out of your soul will flow. You know what that means? That means when we come to Jesus, Jesus is the river maker, and the river maker is in you and out of your soul, out of your heart will flow rivers of living water. You don't have to search anymore. You remember in John 4, when we were back there a few months ago, the Samaritan woman, Jesus says, give me a drink. And she's like, you have nothing to, to, the well is deep. How are you going to get something to drink? Jesus says what? If you knew who was asking you, you would give him a drink. And he would give you a drink of living water. It's like, well, give me some of that water. And then Jesus says, everyone who drinks of this water, the well water, will be thirsty again. The verb tense is again and again and again and again. Continuous. But whoever drinks of the water I will give him will never thirst. 
Double negative. Never, ever, never, ever thirst. The same thing here. In your Bible, in John chapter 7, when he says, come and drink, it's the present tense. It's an action in process with no completion. He's saying, come. Come to me. Continually come to me and drink of me. Find satisfaction in me. Uh, The circumstances, you must have a need, but you must come. And I invite everyone to come and to drink. Are you thirsty this morning? There's no, look, look, look at the text. He doesn't say come and drink and, and do these things, then you could come. It's a gift. Anyone who knows his own thirst is invited to come. Does your soul thirst to know God? Are you searching in places that whenever you come out of that place, you're still thirsty? Jesus invites you to come. And what happens is, let, let's get real. Let me just get real for a minute. We're going to move on to the last point, okay? When you are drinking of the river of life, when you are coming to Jesus for soul-thirsty satisfaction, when your heart is drinking from the river of living water, it is the love of God gushing so much out of you that the love of God becomes a thirst-quenching reality. You want to show others it is pouring out of you. When the love of God is so real, when it goes from the mind to the heart, when you recognize that, it doesn't matter what people think or what people say, you'll never stop sensing and knowing the truth of God's love for you, his acceptance of you all because of Jesus. Then you'll know that you went from the rational to the affection of the heart. When you look at the cross, you look at the gospel, you say, I am so desperately sinful and wicked, I deserve to be separated from God, but God is so loving and died for me and rose for me and I'm accepted all what Jesus did. Do you know that? Thirst quenching power. You can handle criticism. You can handle it without disintegration. You can handle it because you're free. The love of God has stopped being just a simple concept. That's how you know, family. You know that God is just a concept. God is just a rationale thought when the love of God is not pouring from you and you're recognizing and pressing in and preaching the gospel to yourself every day. You'll know that it happened and the Spirit is doing work when the love of God is gushing in you. Amen? All right, let's go to the last one, the condition of the call. Verse 39. Now, the big idea is very simple. The promise to come to Christ, the promise of the river of living water, the promise of thirst-satisfying drink of Christ can only happen, it's conditioned upon the cross. Look at verse 39. Now, this he said about the Spirit, whom those believed in him, those who believed in him, were to receive, for as of yet, the Spirit had not been given. Why? Because Jesus was not yet glorified. So the Holy Spirit was to be given to us when Christ is glorified. All right, let, me, let me just break that down for you. What, this is what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that the Holy Spirit has been up in heaven. He's the third person of the Trinity. He is everywhere, the scripture says. It doesn't mean he's waiting up in heaven for the right time. I'll just wait up here. Right? We know that the Spirit of God has been working since creation. We know the Spirit of God is working in the Old Testament. But there's something happening here. Okay, something happening here. In fact, the people who heard this knew what he was talking about. Isaiah 12 says, you will joyously draw water from the springs of salvation. They're waiting for the God to come to restore the kingdom. They're waiting for this overthrow, although they thought it was political, and God used this water as a symbolic of the kingdom to come. 
And the kingdom did come. It was inaugurated with King Jesus who died for our sins and enabled the kingdom to come partially, at least what we call the yet and not yet, as he comes and comes as king of our hearts. And the image that Jesus gives us is when we come and we drink of Jesus, believing in him, trusting in him. He takes residence in our hearts and he gives us the gift of the Holy Spirit after he is glorified, after he is, goes to the cross, dies and rises again. Okay, so let me just make it really clear what I'm not saying. I am not saying that the Holy Spirit was not given in the Old Testament. What I'm saying is what Christ is saying here is that when he goes to the cross, when he dies for sinners, when he is buried, when he rises again, when he ascends to the Father, Pentecost is going to happen and the Spirit is going to be given in a more permanent, more personal, and more powerful way than that which the Old Testament. There are a lot of new things going on in the New Testament, right? New life, new birth, new creation, new covenant. God says when it's all preludes, conditioned on Jesus' glorification of the cross of Calvary. That's what he's saying. John tells us that it was the cross, the work of Christ that makes all the difference. Calvary, the atoning work of Christ is the necessary prelude to Pentecost and the spirit of God will be poured out. Once again, glory and cross fit together in John's gospel account, Okay? Jesus will come and he will dwell with us. Now here's the question. Why, and then we're gonna end with this, so give me two minutes. This is very important. Why does it take the cross, why does it take Calvary for us to be satisfied? Why does it take the glory of the cross, Jesus' crucifixion, for us to be satisfied? How does the cross This is the question I have to ask. How does the cross become an opportunity for us to be eternally satisfied? An opportunity for our souls to drink. Our thirst quenched by the beauty, the glory, the grace and love of God. How does that happen in the cross? I'll tell you. Because on the cross, when Jesus was crucified and the wrath of God was poured out on his son, Jesus cried out in an abandonment as the Father turned his face away as Jesus absorbed the wrath of God for our sins. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? What is that all about? Well, the prophet tells us, Nahum says, who could stand before his indignation, talking about God, who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like a fire. Family, let me put this together. The burning wrath of God, the justice of God, greater than any fire that has ever kindled, came down on Jesus when he died for our sins. It came down on Jesus when he paid the ultimate price as our substitute and paying the penalty for all our sins. And then he cried out, what? I thirst. Jesus Christ thirsts so that you will never have to thirst again. Jesus Christ thirst so that you will never have to thirst again. We could drink this living water and be satisfied because Jesus rescued us from sin, death, and hell. He has given us eternal life. And as Ricky said, nothing can separate us from his love. Nothing can separate us because of the fiery wrath he took in our place and for our sins. Now we can have the floodgates of God's love through his spirit poured out on us when we come to Jesus. Does that make sense? I hope it does. Revelation 22. 
end of all time. The scripture says the city of God coming down from heaven. No moon is necessary, no sun. It is the glory of the Lamb will be its light. When it comes down, there'll be what? A river of life. It will feed the tree of life. The tree of life bears fruit and heals the nations. It's so difficult to understand what that's going to look like. We're in a broken, fallen, twisted, jacked up world. But all the unraveling of families, all the hurting relationships, all the spiritual and emotional and physical decay will be healed. No more thirst. And Jesus says everyone is excluded as far as the dogs, he says, are excluded, the sorcerers, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolater, the falsehood, they're excluded. That includes me. So now the question is, who gets in? Praise God, he says so. The spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come, and let the one who is thirsty come, let the one who desires to take the water of life without price drink freely. Who gets in? Not the morally good trusting in their own goodness. Those who are thirsty for God. Those who recognize that they cannot drink of their own. Those who fall on their face and say, I thirst. I've been running around looking for it. I can't find it anywhere. But I'm coming freely to Jesus. They get in. They get in. If we say, oh, no, no, no. I I tithe. I go to church. I do all these good things. You're excluded. A thirsty person is just willing to admit the absence of something. They're crying out. Those are outside of the people who won't admit their emptiness. Family, are you empty with Christ today? Are you drinking of Jesus today? Have you been wandering from Jesus and he's calling out to you, come. If you are thirsty, come and drink of me. And you're like, I've got to get back to drink from the well of living water. Maybe it's the first day you've never come to Jesus. And you know, you know, you know you're thirsty. You know you're trying everything in this world to satisfy and nothing seems to be right. It's your sin that you're chasing. Turn from your sin, trust in Jesus. And family, if you are encouraged by this as a child of God, come and drink. He's he's willing, he wants to, he desires for us to come. Do you know you're thirsty? And will you admit it and come to Jesus? and receive eternal, satisfying water for your soul? That's the question. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for giving us this portion of Scripture that we can read so long ago. Jesus himself standing up and teaching us that he is the fulfillment of all that that festival points to. He is the water from the rock. He is the the one who tabernacled among us. He is the provision in the wilderness. He is the one that offers us to come. He is the forgiver of sins of our souls. He is the one that offers us the spirit. He is the one who went to the cross and took and absorbed what we deserve and thirst for us so we can come and drink. Lord, as we sing this song, Pour out your spirit on us. And maybe those who have never come will come. Those who are wandering will come back and those who know you will drink more.